Scared to Death is explicit in every way. Please take care while listening. Whether thou art a ghost that hath come from the earth, or a phantom of night that hath no heart, or one that lieth dead in the desert, or a ghost unburied, or a demon, or a ghoul, whatever thou be until thou art removed, thou shalt find here no water to drink. Thou shalt not stretch forth thy hand to our own. Into our house enter thou not. Through our fence break through thou not. We are protected, though we may be frightened. Our life you may not steal, though we may be scared to death. Welcome to Scared to Death, Creeps, Peepers, Robbers, and Annabelles. I'm Dan, and that's a chick over there. Hey, this chick is here. Dan and the Chick. Dan and the Chick. We're going to rename the show Dan and the Chick. (laughs) Uh, Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy whatever you are celebrating. Or celebrate nothing at all. Or, yeah, happy nothing. Happy nothing. This is the fifth annual Scared to Death holiday episode. Wow. Number five. I know. So when I was uh, working on this episode, I was like, oh my gosh, the next episode, the last one of the year is 225. Yeah. It just, it doesn't seem possible. Time marches forwards. Time waits for no one. (laughs) Uh, Following the tradition, I will share a Victorian-era ghost story from England. That's one of the broad's favorite types of stories. (laughs) You know what it is? Is that this chick just isn't like smart enough to understand why it's so great. I think that's... uh, I don't know if it's because I'm a chick or... (laughs) Uh, But but, uh, these uh, Victorian, you know, ghost... uh, Ghost stories are where our tradition... I won't even pick on you for not being able to speak because, again, as a chick, I just wouldn't understand the complications <laughs> of being a man. Our, our tradition of telling horror stories uh, here in the West, yeah, started off with these Victorian ghost tales. Truth. And as I've said before, Christmas, not Halloween, used to be the spooky season. It's when you would share these tales. I know. I, think it's I love that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how many stories do you have today, Lizzie I'll, Lou? I'll let you guess. Two. Nailed it. Nailed it. Yeah, you're a smart man. <laughs> Big smart man. Uh, I have two tales this week. My first tale is about a possible possession and exorcism, question mark, okay. or maybe a couple of them. Very interesting little tale. And then uh, my second story from a longtime listener uh, who has written to us many times, Clint Bowers. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I do know the name. Yeah. 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 I love hearing from him. Uh, a uh, La Llorona story. Uh, which one? La Llorona. Oh, I, sorry. Uh, what is that? I can't remember. I, I remember the name, but I don't remember what it actually is. Oh, well, I guess you're just going to have to wait. Okay. I'll just find I, out. No, it's like the woman who drowned her kids. And uh, then like, from Mexico? Is that, is that one yeah, come from there? Yeah. It stems from there, but I think like can that and that myth right. can be transferred anywhere. That's right. I, I did. Uh, I, it didn't do one on the regular feed. It's part of my thing. It's like I did one of those stories on one of the live shows. You I know think what? one of the Halloween shows. You know what? We're going to probably get an email about that now, about how you just don't know enough about the, about <laughs> Hey, horror. guys. I'm almost positive that was one of our Scared to Death live shows. That's what I just said. Oh. We, we, you said bonus feed, so you made it sound oh, like a oh, bonus episode. I'm sorry. I misspoke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Logan, yeah, that's yeah, what I think. You, I, th- I think because you did merch around yes. that yeah, 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 yeah. thing for one of our um, – one of our live shows, yep. absolutely. Yep. I was so sad for a second. I thought Logan would be like, hey guys, there was a glitch. It's not recording. <laughs> I know. That's no. a, I thought so too. No, I, I was teasing you because I was going to tell you, uh, we got a super fun email that, um, you know, we just, we don't know enough about this stuff and we just, we shouldn't do this show anymore. Oh, yeah. That was my new favorite email. I'm just going to start sharing them because they're so, <laughs> uh, it was written in a way where I think that they said something like, we're, we're they said we're fonting as nerds. I think they meant fronting. fronting. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. 
because we just we don't know well, enough about this stuff. What so. a weird thing to friends. I I love that people can't like some. I mean, I say people, a, a very small group can just accept that. Like, yeah, I like I like horror stories. I mean, I mean, we've yeah. been pretty clear about like how this story got started. It's like I love Stephen King, love horror stories, love horror movies. Yeah, uh, you know, love fascinated by the the paranormal, the supernatural, and just wanted to get in. But some people get like so weird about it, where it's like, oh, you haven't read like these six books, or you don't do these rituals. It's like that's not what I'm, this is. I'm guessing the nerd fonting was because uh, I don't like Harry Potter. Oh, I think I think I ah. did this to us. Yeah, as as a chick would do. <laughs> Um, okay, so you got your two stories. Yes, I have sir. my two. My first will be a modern, supposedly true horror story that has nothing to do with the holidays. It's centered around two men stuck in their home in the early days of the COVID quarantine in oh, 2020. That's been a long time since we've had a COVID-related trapped at home. Yeah, yeah. These guys, these guys are dealing with being stuck at home with an uninvited guest. And I won't give away more than that. And then next, we'll get traditional. And I'll tell a tale from arguably the most famous English ghost story author of the Victorian era, do you care to guess who that is? I have not shared one of his stories before, but he was a very famous author. Old Dickie boy. Is yeah, Charles, Charles Dickens. Dickens. That's right. Yeah, well done. Uh, the man who wrote what has to be the most famous ghost story of the 19th century, a story that has been adapted into plays and movies, is still read or watched by millions of people every holiday season. Do you know what I'm going to say? Um, the... Um, well, I was going to say the name of a movie. That's yeah, it, 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 there was a movie based on it. It's, um, you know, Scrooge. Not, yep, exactly. Yeah. Ebenezer Scrooge, A Christmas Carol. But no, what, what I was thinking of was, uh, uh, what's that? Bill Murray. St stop. Uh, there's a movie that I worked on with McConaughey <laughs> and Emma Stone, and it's like a dumb, but it's like based on like the three ghosts coming to visit you. Ghosts of Girlfriends Past. Oh, okay. Oof. So my brain immediately just like has to make everything connect to work, I guess. <laughs> I love that you started to ask for like, what's that thing? And then I gave a guess. You're like, stop. Stop. Wait, hold on. Because I heard Logan laugh about that because that was pretty ridiculous. You're like, hey, um, help me out. Help me out. Uh, what was that thing? And then the person tries to help you. Stop it. <laughs> Let, I don't want, I, I asked for help. Oh, I don't want Oh man. If the chick was more subservient, she wouldn't be allowed to speak oh, to you that way. No kidding. No, you know what it is? It, when yeah. I can't remember something, it, it is my own idiosyncrasy of like, I want to just keep saying words until it comes to me mm -hmm. and the interference, even though I've said like, what is mm -hmm. the interference of someone else's voice? It oftentimes makes it harder for me to make the connection. Yeah. I just wanted to uh, avoid a, a weird amount of dead air on an audio show uh -huh. where, where just people listening to you think. People like that. I don't know that they do. No, no, they uh, really do. They, they've told me they love it. Uh, today, I will tell a shorter one of his stories, one of Dickens' stories, that many think is a better ghost story than uh, A Christmas Carol. Okay, Dickie. The story of the signal man. And I don't want to spoil it by alluding to what it's about. I can't wait to hear what he has to say. So once you are socked and cozied up, oh, I will get started. I got some good holiday socks going on. I got my Jingle Juice socks, which is a weird phrase. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Before the show, we were talking about all the different things that could mean. <laughs> okay, not much set up at all in this story. I really love this story. Sent in by a new member of the Scared to Death team. Uh, remember the first few weeks of forced isolation back in early 2020. How uncanny it was for so many of us. How completely strange to be spending so much time at home than ever before. Trying out old world hobbies like baking sourdough bread from scratch or woodworking or knitting with the news turned on in the background talking about a virus that at that time we knew nothing about, not where it came from, not what it did, and definitely not how to stop it. Severed from our communities and people, it was a lonely time in so many ways for so many of us, even if you did have roommates or live with your family. There was also something so 
eerie about it. Something so chilling about a world frozen in place, hiding from a monster we could not see and did not understand. Initially, the only way to fight against the formless force that was claiming more and more lives every day was by locking ourselves away in our homes. But what if, when you locked yourself away in what was supposed to be your safe haven from a virus, something else, something more unknown and frightening, was locked in there with you? Time now for the tale of Can You Hear Its Footsteps? It had only been a few days since Governor Newsom ordered all Californians to shelter in place. And for two Los Angeles natives, a man we'll call Jacob and his partner Oscar, so far isolation had been pretty uneventful, boring even. They both had demanding, occasionally soul-sucking jobs in the entertainment industry. And initially, a few days off, maybe even a few weeks, didn't seem like the worst thing in the world, especially to Jacob. He knew that COVID, he knew that the COVID death toll in California had already almost reached 230. Because Oscar checked the statistics every morning, afternoon, evening, and also sometimes in the middle of the night. But he was still grateful for a break. He'd long wanted to take some time just to sit and relax and do absolutely nothing. And more than that, he was excited to spend so much time with Oscar doing all the things they had talked about doing for so long. First on the to-do list was painting and furnishing the guest bedroom. Ever since they'd moved into the small two-story house in Culver City about a year prior, they had talked about how truly ugly the putrid, piss-green color of the walls in the guest bedroom were, and how desperately they needed to change it so that they could finally pick out some matching furniture. But somehow, they just never had the time. The guest bedroom was located on the small second floor of the Spanish-style house, which they rarely spent time in. The only things on the upper level beside the guest bedroom, which was empty apart from the still-shrink-wrapped mattress on the floor and two IKEA bedside tables, was a half-bath that no one ever used and a storage closet. On the day they started the paint job, covering the putrid piss green with a shade of burnt red Jacob had found online, Oscar was in a terrible mood. He hadn't slept well the night before, and when Oscar didn't get his seven-plus hours of sleep, he tended to make that everyone's problem. Because his job required him to get up at 5 a.m. and drive to North Hollywood, Oscar went to bed every night without fail by 10 p.m. Even though he no longer had anywhere to go in the mornings, the habit still stuck. Jacob, on the other hand, was a night owl and kind of an insomniac. So most nights when Oscar went to bed, Jacob retreated to the living room to play the outer worlds with his headphones on and try not to wake up Oscar. After moving the mattress into the hallway and leaving a tarp on the floor, they began painting the guest bedroom. Oscar sighed for the third time that morning and said, I am just exhausted. Don't worry, honey, I'm sure you'll survive. Jacob smiled and patted his partner on the shoulder and continued painting. What were you doing up here anyway last night, making all that noise? inquired Oscar. Huh? Jacob was only half paying attention at this point. He was focused on not getting any orange paint on the wooden doorframe. Last night, what were you doing up here? All the noise you were making. You know these are thin floors, right? And our bedroom was right below you? I heard everything. What were you doing? Jacob paused and looked up. I wasn't in here last night. I was on my PC in the living room. Oscar looked confused. Are you sure? I definitely heard it. It sounded like someone stomping around. I would have gone to tell you to be quiet, but I thought you were maybe trying out that new Instagram workout thing we saw. <laughs> Jacob stood up and looked Oscar in the eyes. Honey, he said in his most comforting voice, I promise I was not up there. After saying goodnight, I went to the kitchen to get a snack, and then I was in the living room until one o'clock. I came straight to bed after that. Considering the issue dealt with, Jacob went and returned to painting. I heard something, said Oscar. Maybe we have raccoons, or the wind was blowing that palm against the window again. No. 
heard something else. His voice was softer now. He sounded scared. Jacob turned back around to see his partner staring vacantly at one corner of the room. When he realized Jacob was looking at him, Oscar returned his steady gaze. I heard something human. They finished painting the room that evening with no more talk of the phantom noises, but Oscar was quiet for the rest of the day. Jacob tried to cheer him up by making his favorite meal, fettuccine with a side of broccoli and focaccia bread, and suggested they watch his favorite show, Better Call Saul. But the whole day, Oscar's head was somewhere else. Even though they were back downstairs, it seemed like he had never left the guest bedroom. That night, Oscar told Jacob he thought there was a ghost in the house. Jacob's first reaction was to snort, but his partner's tone was so uncharacteristically serious that he stiffened his laugh halfway through, resulting in an odd chortle rasp that turned into a cough. After regaining his composure and drinking some water, Jacob met Oscar's stoic gaze. My love, he said, there is no such thing. Oscar looked like he was about to say something else, but decided against it. All right, was all he said. The next six months, the ghost discussion was never resolved. Oscar continued to tell Jacob of the odd things he kept hearing and feeling, the rattling of the blinds when no one was there, an icy cold breeze that seemed to originate from no single place, cutlery and dishes he put away in the cupboard mysteriously returning to the kitchen counter, and, of course, the sound of someone in the upstairs bedroom, specifically the sound of their footsteps. Jacob would realize later that Oscar hadn't gone into that room for months, not because they just didn't uh, want to use it, uh, because he was afraid to use it. Jacob never heard or felt anything, and he was starting to get seriously concerned. He wasn't worried about a ghost. He was worried that the stress of working remotely and how the anxiety of not being able to see his family on the East Coast was clearly taking its toll on Oscar's mental health. Slowly, they started stepping outside their home bubble to meet a select few friends in places like Griffith Park or Manhattan Beach. Getting to socialize was good for them, even if it was often from a six-foot distance. One week after they had met two friends for a social distance happy hour in their driveway, but maybe also hugged them goodbye, Jacob woke up with every muscle in his body aching in a sore throat. Although Oscar insisted he didn't care if he also got sick, Jacob decided it was best if he quarantined away from his partner, who had asthma. While gathering his toothbrush and other toiletries, Jacob shouted through his mask to Oscar in the living room. We'll finally get to use the guest bedroom. Oscar didn't reply. When Jacob walked out of the master bedroom, ready to move upstairs, Oscar was standing in the kitchen looking agitated. Oscar was wringing his hands and looking at, looking at a loss for what to say. Just, he began trailing off and looking everywhere around the house, but at Jacob. Finally, he looked him in the eye. Just, just yell if you need anything. He paused again. Or see anything. The guest bedroom, though now furnished with a queen bed parallel to the curtainless windows, the two Ikea nightstands flanking either side and a discount mural of some beach or another hanging on the wall, it still seemed just as empty as it had when the mattress was still in his packaging and the walls were still putrid green. Jacob shivered as he entered the room. I must be getting a fever, he thought. After burrowing himself between the stiff sheets and pulling the comforter and blankets just under his chin, he opened his phone with the intention of finding something to watch. However, though it was early in the evening and that morning he had slept in, the exhaustion of being sick settled deep into his bones, and he was soon fast asleep. Crash! Jacob was startled awake by the sound of something falling hard on the thin wooden floors. He sat up abruptly, shedding the layers of polyester and fleece and quilt, and looked wildly around the room. It took a moment for Jacob to orient himself. Groggy from the fever reducer Oscar made him take, and with a dull headache pounding in his head, he felt like he was still dreaming. 
A sinister moonlight poured through the windows, piercing its way through the Los Angeles smog and the palm trees outside, casting odd shadows on the wall in the empty bedroom. One shadow, Jacob thought, was particularly odd. It didn't move like the others. It didn't sway slightly like the silhouettes of the palm trees' heavy leaves. No, this shadow was definitely unnatural. Jacob didn't move, he didn't breathe, he just watched uncomprehendingly. The shadow seemed to move ever so slightly against the rhythmic flow of the other dark shapes. It was formless, and it was now crawling, creeping its way higher and higher. Jacob buried his head in his hands and squeezed his eyes shut, trying desperately to think clearly. He felt untethered, unmoored, like the real world was slipping farther and farther away as he was sinking deeper and deeper into an unnameable emptiness. Was he still in the dream that he had been having? And what dream was that anyway? He thought it was about a woman, maybe, or something that once was a woman, and that it was just not a dream, but a nightmare, a terrible nightmare. Jacob felt panicky. He held himself still and kept his eyes closed, still afraid of what he might see if he opened them. What if he saw that shadow again? He didn't know how long he stayed frozen there like that, sitting up in the bed with his palms pressed against his eyes. But eventually his heart rate slowed, his thoughts became clear, and the world seemed to be returning to him. Cautiously, he lifted his head and opened his eyes. Cast on the wall in front of him, the palm tree's shadows still flowed with ease, and he could discern no unnatural shape among them. He breathed a sigh of relief and fell back onto his pillow, musing that the fever reducer Oscar gave him must have had some side effects he'd neglected to share. Once again, laying down on his back, the blankets pulled taut under his chin, Jacob hoped he might fall back asleep. But something caught his eye on the ceiling, directly above him. There was a shadow, the shadow, where no light could have possibly produced one. Once again, it began to move, to crawl, but not along the walls or the ceiling. No, the shadow was descending, slowly sinking towards the bed, as if being dragged by some malignant gravity, coming straight for Jacob. It had become unbound, unleashed, and if he didn't move, Jacob worried it would take him with it. To where he didn't know, he didn't want to know. But he was paralyzed, and he watched in awestruck horror as the shadow inched closer, closer, closer still. Dun, 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 dun. The oppressive sound of hundreds of footsteps filled the room, coming from nowhere in particular and everywhere at once, including inside his own skull. Jacob was sure he would go deaf from the sound. He felt as if something was gnawing at his very soul, picking at his flesh with dirty nails and eating at him from the inside. At some point, he started to scream, and he didn't stop. Just as Jacob was thinking, with what lucidity he did have, that he would be swallowed whole by the shadow and the sounds in the dark, the guest bedroom door flung open, and a dull light from the hallway streamed into the room. Oscar burst in and found Jacob slumped over on the floor by the bed. The smell of illness permeated the room, but not just illness, there was something else. Something that could never be seen under a microscope, like a virus. There was a darkness, a sentient darkness, that seemed to retreat when he opened the door. He ran to Jacob's side and screamed at the retreating dark what he thought was something like, Get out! Get out! Leave him alone! However, he was so scared, so panicked, the sight of his partner splayed out on the rug like that, that he didn't really know what he was saying. Whatever he yelled, the darkness obeyed. Or maybe it simply decided to leave. Either way, it was gone. Jacob and Oscar moved to an apartment in North Hollywood as soon as their lease was up. The process of moving during lockdown was arduous and exhausting, but as Oscar said, completely worth it because their new place was a 10-minute drive away from his new job, so he didn't have to wake up at 5 a.m. anymore, cheaper than Culver City, had covered parking, and most importantly, wasn't haunted. It had been three years since Jacob slept in the guest, or it's been three years now since Jacob slept in the guest bedroom, 
and neither of them have been able to make any real sense of that unforgettable evening and the sounds Oscar heard in the months leading up to it, what the entity was or what it wanted. They do have a theory, though. Maybe, just maybe, whatever that thing was, it had been there in the upstairs guest bedroom just above where they slept for a long, long time, since long before they ever moved in. And maybe they'd never noticed it because they'd been too busy and the world had been too loud. It took the world becoming so much quieter, quiet enough for them to slow down and really listen, for them to notice its presence, for Oscar to finally hear its footsteps. And then, when it had his attention, when it made him afraid, it now had something to feed on and grew stronger and became whatever it became before it vanished. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, I, I love this idea that, like, Something could have been happening in our houses all along, but we were all too busy. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Like, you know, the world was, excuse me, too noisy. Uh-huh. Just like the noise of life, you know? Yeah. Hustling about, rushing out to school, to work, to plans with friends, bringing grocery into the house, like whatever. Yeah. When you think about a house, it is constantly full of sound. Yep. That you just generally probably don't notice because you got mm-hmm. the TV on, you got the music on. And like you said, you're zipping around. Yeah. You're exhausted when you do go to sleep from like a long, full day. Yeah. And then when everybody was just like stuck in their houses, especially in some places like Southern California, and I, I can picture that where you're just, you know, you're bored. You're just sitting there. It's just getting quieter, yeah. getting quieter. And you have time to think. You're very, very slowed down. Mm-hmm. And you would start to notice things you didn't notice before. I loved his reaction too of like, uh, you know, just excited initially to slow down. I think we all were. You know, mm-hmm. we don't really talk about COVID in meaningful ways anymore unless yeah. we are debating a vaccine or we're discussing yeah. long COVID, right? So it's right. just like, we're not really talking too, too much about the emotional ramifications of it anymore. I mean, like some of us are in therapy from it for sure and relationships fell apart, but just like the basics yeah. of just how it affected our life. It, oh, it affected the culture so much and just the so world. Of, much. And I think the, the biggest thing that maybe came out of it, I mean, is that, you know, hundreds of millions of people Billions of people perhaps had a chance to reflect on their life unlike they had ever had before. Kind of like almost like a forced reflection. I, know, I would kill for it right now. Yeah. Well, and, and okay, it, honestly, it changed like, people. It changed people. It's like careers, like the great, I what know. do they call it? The great resignation. Mm-hmm. There's not a coincidence that followed that because, you know, a lot of people are like, what am I doing with my life? Right. Because you're just constantly like putting mm-hmm. one foot in front of the other. Just like all of us are yeah. we're just trying to get through it. We're just trying to get food on the table, pay the mortgage, uh, pay the rent, get sure. the kids to school. Or, or if we're chasing, you know, uh, a career path, we're just like, okay, next step, next promotion, next step, next, you yeah. know, and that forced shutdown. Yeah. It just, I hadn't visited that space mm-hmm. myself in so long. I was like, oh yeah, there were parts about it that I loved, including the cooking and the baking. Yeah. I made so many pretzels, <laughs> got really into hot pretzels. And then yeah. Monroe and I got really into cookies. Yeah. We, we baked a book of 100 cookies. Yep. Yep. It was so fun. Uh, no pics associated with this story, but looking for pics of spooky shadows on the ceiling, oh. I ended up coming across various large 3D floor, wall, or ceiling stickers. So cool. Logan, I'll pop this first one up. Giant decal. Oh, whoa. With that 3D kind of vibe where it looks like something's coming from the other side of the floor. In this case, this yeah. is creepy head coming up out of the floor. You could also easily put that up on the ceiling so it looks like it's coming out of some other world above you. If I really was into practical jokes, oh, yeah, and you went out with your buddies for a night, mm-hmm. and while you were gone, I placed that. Yeah. Oh, so look at this next in one. The I, I have one more on the ceiling. Oh, you'd be so screwed. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now that one looks like a hellscape. It's like hands coming out of some kind of. That one doesn't bother me as much because it doesn't feel as realistic. That first one oh. was really good. I know. I was thinking like uh, <laughs> to mess with somebody. You could either like let's okay. You have somebody coming over to your guest room to yeah. kind of go with the story, but put that on the ceiling. So a lot of times, like I don't know, I, I'm not very observant of those kind of details. Like I would definitely walk into a room not notice what was above me on the ceiling. Yeah. Just set my stuff down, kind of go about my day, especially if you're just popping in for a second to set some luggage down or whatever. Mm -hmm. Then you go out for some drinks, you go to bed that night, you crash, then you wake up to go to the bathroom, whatever. And then you're looking up and you see that in the darkness where it's harder to tell that it's a sticker. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That would scare and you're the not shit in your house. out of somebody. Yeah. Well, I love the idea, like if it were possible with how the stickers created that like, in light, mm -hmm. you can't see it. It only shows oh. in dark. Oh, that'd be genius. <laughs> I was imagining that little guy coming down from the ceiling. I was thinking of them, of him as like a, or the shadow as mm -hmm. a, like a spider uh -huh. coming down on like one strand of its yep. little, little legs kind of moving uh, tendrils. Yeah. Like a claw, like uh -huh. the claw game. It's funny. I'm not even. I'm not even particularly scared of spiders. You're laughing at my sounds. That was a good one. But still, just that, like when when a spider on the one string of web comes down, like, and all of a sudden it's like right by your face. Every time I do have that reaction, it's like, oh, I know. And and then I just feel like spiders are all over me for the next twenty minutes. Yeah, I know. I know. I made this note about painting. I hate painting. I just want it to be made known. I hate painting. Yeah. I, I used to like it when I was younger. I, I liked, you know what I liked about painting? I like how you could transform a room's vibe. Yes. In like one day with a good like paint tray roller and the right kind of paint. Sure. But now I'm like, I hope I don't have to do a lot of painting in my future. Okay. What I don't like about it is the meticulousness of the painter's tape. Mm -hmm. It just, it's too tedious for me. Yeah. I get too frustrated with it. I, however, it is very satisfying to pull that tape off. If the, the line holds. Oh man, so satisfying. But when I lived, yeah. my last apartment that I lived in before I lived with you, when I lived in at 642 West Knoll Drive, uh, I decided that I wanted to paint my room like this incredibly dark purple. I'm uh -huh. talking like, well, this is black, but it was like as dark as this. And it took so many coats of paint and I refused to not get it done in one day. And yeah. I was going at it so aggressively. I gave myself trigger finger and my pinky oh my was like locked in this position for Crazy. like a week. <laughs> so that's what, that's really where my hatred of painting comes from. <laughs> uh, ready to move away from that story and over to the Victorian era? I was stalling. I was really trying not to go there. Well, maybe you can get some sleep. Okay. Oh, oh my God. Was it one of the Victorian stories where I fell asleep? I don't know. <laughs> oh, I love that. Before we hear some Dickens, first, our mid-show sponsor break. If you don't want to hear ads on this show, you can also join our Patreon, where you get the catalog ad-free monthly bonus episodes, help make uh, or help us make our charitable contributions and more. Thanks for listening to our sponsor deals, Creeps and Peepers. Charles Dickens uh, first published the following story in the 1866 Christmas edition of the Victorian weekly literary magazine all the year round. Uh, no setup. Just his story as he wrote it. Time now for the tale of the signal man. Hello! Below there! When he heard a voice thus calling to him, he was standing at the door of his box with a flag in his hand furled round its short pole. One would have thought, considering the nature of the ground, that he could not have doubted from what quarter the voice came. But instead of looking up to where I stood on the top of the steep cutting nearly over the he his head, he turned himself about and looked down the line. There was something remarkable in his manner of doing so. 
though I could not have said for my life what. But I know it was remarkable enough to attract my notice, even though his figure was foreshortened and shadowed, down in the deep trench, and mine was high above him, so steeped in the glow of an angry sunset, that I had shaded my eyes with my hand before I saw him at all. Hello! Below! From looking down the line, he turned himself about again, and, raising his eyes, saw my figure high above him. Is there any path by which I can come down and speak to you? He looked up at me without replying, and I looked down at him without pressing him too soon with a repetition of my idle question. Just then there came a vague vibration in the earth and air, quickly changing into a violent pulsation, and an oncoming rush that caused me to start back, as though it had forced to draw me down. With such When such vapor as rose to my height from this rapid train had passed me, and was skimming away over the landscape, I looked down again and saw him refurling the flag he had shown while the train went by. I repeated my inquiry. After a pause, during which he seemed to regard me with fixed attention, he motioned with his rolled-up flag towards a point on my level, come two or three hundred yards distant. I called down to him, All right! and made for that point. There, by dint of looking closely about me, I found a rough zigzag, descending path notched out, which I followed. The cutting was extremely deep and unusually precipitate. It was made through a clammy stone that became oozier and wetter as I went down. For these reasons, I found the way long enough to give me time to recall a singular air of reluctance or compulsion with which he had pointed out the path. When I came down low enough upon the zigzag descent to see him again, I saw that he was standing between the rails on the way by which the train had lately passed, in an attitude as if he were waiting for me to appear. He had his left hand at his chin, and that left elbow rested on his right hand, crossed over his breast. His attitude was one of such expectation and watchfulness that I stopped a moment, wondering at it. I resumed my downward way, and stepping out upon the level of the railroad, and drawing nearer to him, saw that he was a dark, sallow man, with a dark beard and rather heavy eyebrows. His post was in as solitary and dismal a place as, I ever, as ever I saw. On either side, a dripping wet wall of jagged stone, excluding all view but a strip of sky, the perspective one way, only a crooked prolongation of this great dungeon, the shorter perspective in the other direction terminating in a gloomy red light and the gloomier entrance to a black tunnel, in whose massive architecture there was a barbarous, depressing, and forbidding air, so little sunlight ever found its way to this spot that it had an earthly, deadly smell, and so much cold wind rushed through it that it struck chill to me as if I had left the natural world. Before he stirred, I was near enough to him to have touched him. Not even then removing his eyes from mine, he stepped back one step and lifted his hand. This was a lonesome post to occupy, I said, and it had riveted my attention when I looked down from up yonder. A visitor was a rarity, I should suppose, not an unwelcome rarity, I hoped. In me he merely saw a man who had been shut up within narrow limits all his life, and who, being at last set free, had a newly awakened interest in these great works. To such purpose I spoke to him, but I am far from sure of the terms I used, for, besides that I am not happy in opening any conversation, there was something in the man that daunted me. He directed a most curious look towards the red light near the tunnel's mouth, and looked all about it, as if something were missing from it, and then looked at me. That light was part of his charge, was it not? He answered in a low voice, Don't you know it is? The monstrous thought came into my mind as I perused the fixed eyes and the saturnine face that this was a spirit, not a man. I have speculated since whether there may have been infection in his mind. 
In my turn, I stepped back. But in making the action, I detected in his eyes some latent fear of me. This put the monstrous thought to flight. You look at me, I said, forcing a smile, as if you had a dread of me. I was doubtful, he returned, whether I had seen you before. Where? He pointed to the red light he had looked at. There, I said. Intently watchful of me, he replied, but without sound. Yes. My good fellow, what should I do here? However be that as it may, I never was there, you may swear. I think I may, he rejoined. Yes, I'm sure I may. His manner cleared like my own. He replied to my remarks with readiness and in well-chosen words. Had he much to do there? Yes, that was to say he had enough responsibility to bear. But exactness and watchfulness were what was required of him, and of actual work, manual labor, he had next to none. To change that signal, to trim those lights, and to turn this iron handle now and then was all he had to do under that head. Regarding those many long and lonely hours of which I seemed to make so much, he could only say that routine of his life had shaped itself into that form and he had grown used to it. He had taught himself a language down here, if only to know it by sight, and to have formed his own crude ideas of its pronunciation could be called learning it. He had also worked at fractions and decimals and tried a little algebra, but he was, and had been as a boy, a poor hand at figures. Was it necessary for him when on duty always to remain in that channel of damp air? And could he never rise into the sunshine from between those high stone walls? Why, that depended upon times and circumstances. Under some conditions, there would be less upon the line than under others. And the same held good as to certain hours of the day and night. In bright weather, he did choose occasions for getting a little above these lower shadows. But being at all times liable to be called by his electric bell, and at such times listening for it with redoubled anxiety, the relief was less than I would suppose. He took me into his box, where there was a fire, a desk for an official book in which he had to make certain entries, a telegraphic instrument with his dial, face, and needles, and the little bell of which he had spoken. On my trusting that he would excuse the remark that he had been well-educated, and, I hoped I might say without offense, perhaps educated above that station, he observed that instances of slight incongruity in such wise would rarely be found wanting among large bodies of men, that he had heard it was so in workhouses, in the police force, even in that last desperate resource, the army, and that he knew it was so more or less in any great railway staff. He had been, when young, if I could believe it, sitting in that hut, he scarcely could, a student of natural philosophy, and had attended lectures, but he had run wild, misused his opportunities, gone down and never risen again. He had no complaint to offer about that. He had made his bed, and he lay upon it. It was far too late to make another. All that I have had, all that... I have here condensed, he said in a quiet manner, with his grave dark regards divided between me and the fire. He threw in the word, sir, from time to time, and especially when he referred to his youth, as though to request me to understand that he claimed to be nothing but what I found him. He was several times interrupted by the little bell and had to read off messages and send replies. Once he had to stand without the door and display a flag as a train passed and make some verbal communication to the driver. Driver. In the discharge of his duties, I observed him to be remarkably exact and vigilant, breaking off his discourse as a syllable and remaining silent until what he had to do was done. In a word, I should have set this man down as one of the safest of men to be employed in that capacity. But for the circumstance that while he was speaking to me, he twice broke off with a fallen color, turned his face towards the little bell when it did not ring, opened the door of the hut, which was kept shut to exclude the unhealthy damp, and looked out towards the red light near the mouth of the tunnel. 
On both of those occasions, he came back to the fire with the inexplicable air upon him which I had remarked, without being able to define, when we were so far asunder. Said I when I rose to leave him, You almost make me think that I have met a contented man. I am afraid I must acknowledge that I said it to lead him on. I believe I used to be so, he rejoined, in the low voice in which he had first spoken. But I am troubled, sir, I am troubled. He would have recalled those words if he could. He had said them, however, and I took them up quickly. With what? What is your trouble? It is very difficult to impart, sir. It is very, very difficult to speak of. If you ever make me another visit, I will try to tell you. But I expressly intend to make you another visit. Say, when shall it be? I go off early in the morning and shall be on again at ten, at ten tomorrow night, sir. I will come at eleven. He thanked me and went out at the door with me. I'll show my white light, sir, he said in his peculiar, peculiar low voice. "'Till you have found the way up. "'When you have found, don't call out. "'And when you are at the top, don't call out.' "'His manner seemed to make the place strike colder to me, "'but I said no more than very well. "'And when you come down tomorrow night, don't call out. "'Let me ask you a parting question. "'What made you cry, "'Hello, below there, tonight?' "'Heaven knows,' said I. "'I cried something to that effect. "'Not to that effect, sir. "'Those were the very words. "'I know them well.' Admit those, were the, admit those were the very words. I said them, no doubt, because I saw you below. For no other reason. What other reason could I possibly have? You had no feeling that they were conveyed to you in any supernatural way. No. He wished me good night, and I held up his light. I walked by the side of the down line of rails with a very disagreeable sensation of a train coming behind me until I found the path. It was easier to mount than to descend, and I got back to my inn without any adventure. Punctual to my appointment, I placed my foot on the first notch of the zigzag next night as the distant clocks were striking eleven. He was waiting for me at the bottom with his white light on. I have not called out, I said, when we came close together. May I speak now? By all means, sir. Good night, then, and here's my hand. Good night, sir, and here's mine. With that, we walked side by side to his box, entered it, closed the door, and sat down by the fire. I have made up my mind, sir, he began, bending forward as soon as we were seated, and speaking in a tone but a little above a whisper, that you shall not have to ask me twice what troubles me. I took you for someone else yesterday evening. That troubles me. That mistake? No, that's someone else. Who is it? I don't know. Like me? I don't know. I'd never saw the face. The left arm is across the face, and the right arm is waved, violently waved, this way. I followed his action with my eyes, and it was the action of an arm gesticulating with the utmost passion and vehemence. For God's sake, clear the way. One moonlight night, one moonlight night, said the man. I was sitting here when I heard a voice cry, Hello! Below there! I started up, looked from the door, and saw this someone else standing by the red light near the tunnel, waving as I just now showed you. The voice seemed hoarse with shouting, and it cried, Look out! Look out! And then again, Hello! Below there! Look out! I caught up my lamp, turned it on red, and ran towards the figure, calling, What's wrong? What had happened? Where? It stood just outside the blackness of the tunnel. I advanced so close upon it that I wondered at its keeping the sleeve across its eyes. I ran right up at it, and my hand stretched out to pull the sleeve away when it was gone. Into the tunnel, said I. No, 
I ran on into the tunnel 500 yards. I stopped, held my lamp above my head, and saw the figures of the measured distance, and saw the wet stains stealing down the walls and trickling through the arch. I ran out again faster than I had run in, for I had a mortal abhorrence of the place upon me, and I looked all round the red light with my own red light, and I went up the iron ladder to the gallery atop of it, and I came down again and ran back here. I telegraphed both ways. An alarm has been given. Is anything wrong? The answer came back both ways. All well. Resisting the slow touch of a frozen finger tracing out my spine, I showed him how the how that this figure must be a deception of his sense of sight and how that figures originating in disease of the delicate nerves that minister to the functions of the eye were known to have often troubled patients some of whom had become conscious of the nature of their affliction and had even proved it by experiments upon themselves as to an imaginary cry said i do but listen for a moment to the wind in this unnatural valley while we speak so low and to the wild harp it makes of the telegraph wires that was all very well, he returned, after we had sat listening for a while, and he ought to know something of the wind and the wires, he who so often passed long winter nights here, alone and watching, but he would beg to remark that he had not finished. I asked his pardon, and he slowly added these words, touching my arm. Within six hours after the appearance, the memorable accident on this line happened, and within ten hours the dead and wounded were brought along through the tunnel over to the spot where the figure had stood. A disagreeable shudder crept over me, but I did my best against it. It was not to be denied, I rejoined, that this was a remarkable coincidence, calculated deeply to impress his mind. But it was unquestionable that remarkable coincidence, coincidences did continually occur, and they must be taken into account in dealing with such a subject. Though to be sure, I must admit, I added, for I thought I saw that he was going to bring the objection to bear upon me. Men of common sense did not allow much for coincidences in making the ordinary calculations of life. He again begged to remark that he had not finished. I again begged his pardon for being betrayed into interruptions. This, he said again laying his hand upon my arm and glancing over his shoulder with hollow eyes, was just a year ago. Six or seven months passed and I had recovered from the surprise and shock when one morning, as the day was breaking, I, standing at the door, looked towards the red light and saw the specter again. He stopped with a fixed look at me. Did it cry out? No, it was silent. Did it wave its arm? No, it leaned against the shaft of the light with both hands before the face like this. Once more I followed his action with my eyes. It was an action of mourning. I have seen such an attitude in stone figures on tombs. Did you go up to it? I came in and sat down partly to collect my thoughts, partly because it had turned me faint. When I went to the door again, daylight was above me and the ghost was gone. But nothing followed. Nothing came of this. He touched me on the arm with his forefinger, twice or thrice, giving a ghastly nod each time. That very day, as a train came out of the tunnel, I noticed at a carriage window on my side what looked like a confusion of hands and heads and something waved. I saw it just in time to signal the driver, Stop! He shut off and put his brake on, but the train drifted past here 150 yards or more. I ran after it and, as I went along, heard terrible screams and cries. A beautiful young lady had died instantaneously in one of the compartments and was brought in here and laid down on this floor between us. Involuntarily, I pushed my chair back and looked from the boards at which he pointed to himself. True, sir, true, precisely as it happened, to tell, you, to tell it to you. I could think of nothing to say to any purpose and my mouth was very dry. The wind and the wires took up the story with a long, lamenting wail. He resumed. Now, sir, mark this and judge how my mind is troubled. 
The specter came back a week ago. Ever since, it has been here now and again by fits and starts. At the light? At the danger light. What does it seem to do? He repeated, if possible, with increased passion and vehemence, that former gesticulation of, for God's sake, clear the way. Then he went on. I have no peace or rest for it. It calls to me. For many minutes together, in an agonized manner. Below there! Look out! Look out! It stands waving to me. It rings my little bell. I caught at that. Did it ring your bell yesterday evening when I was here, and you went to the door? Twice. Why, see, said I, how your imagination misleads you. My eyes were on the bell, and my ears were open to the bell, and if I am a living man, it did not ring at those times. No, nor at any other time, except when it was rung in that natural course of physical things by the station communicating with you. He shook his head. I have never made a mistake as to that yet, sir. I have never confused the specter's ring with the man's. The ghost's ring is a strange vibration in the bell that it derives from nothing else, and I have not asserted that the bell stirs to the eye. I don't wonder what you failed to hear it, but I heard it. And did the specter seem to be there when you looked out? It was there. Both times. He repeated firmly, both times. Will you come to the door with me and look for it now? He bit his underlip as though he were somewhat unwilling, but arose. I opened the door and stood on the step while he stood in the doorway. There was the danger light. There was the dismal mouth of the tunnel. There was the high, wet stone walls of the cutting. There were the stars above them. Do you see it? I asked him, taking particular note of his face. His eyes were prominent and strained, but not very much more so, perhaps, than my own had been when I had directed them earnestly towards the same spot. No, he answered. It's not there. Agreed, said I. We went in again, shut the door, and resumed our seats. I was thinking how best to improve this, improve this advantage, if it might be called one, when he took up the conversation in such a matter-of-course way, so assuming that there could be no serious question of fact between us, that I felt myself placed in the weakest of positions. By this time, you will fully understand, sir, he said, that what troubles me so dreadfully is the, is the question, what does the specter mean? I was not sure I told him that I did fully understand. What is it warning against, he said, ruminating with his eyes on the fire and only by times turning them on me. What is the danger? Where is the danger? There is danger overhanging somewhere on the line. Some dreadful calamity will happen. It is not to be doubted this third time after what has gone on before. But surely this is a cruel haunting of me. What can I do? He pulled out his handkerchief and wiped the drops from his heated forehead. If I telegraph danger on either side of me or on both, I can give no reason for it, he went on, wiping the palms of his hands. I should get into trouble and do no good. They would think I was mad. That is the way it would work. Message, danger, take care, answer, what danger, where, message, don't know, but for God's sake, take care. They would displace me. What else could they do? His pain of mind was most pitiable to see. It was the mental torture of a conscientious man. Conscientious. Conscientious. Oh my gosh. Conscientious. Man. Oppressed beyond endurance by an unintelligible responsibility involving life. When it first stood under the danger light, he went on, putting his dark hair back from his head and drawing his hands outward across and across his temples in an extremity of feverish distress. Why not tell me where that accident was to happen, if it must happen. Why not tell me how it could be averted, if it could have been averted? When on its second coming it hit its face, why not tell me instead she is going to die? Let them keep her at home. 
If it came on those two occasions only to show me that its warnings were true and so to prepare me for the third, why not warn me plainly now? And I, Lord help me, a mere poor signalman on this solitary station, why not go to somebody with credit to be believed and power to act? When I saw him in this state, I saw that for the poor man's sake as well as for the public safety, what I had to do for the time was to compose his mind. Therefore, setting aside all question of reality or unreality between us, I represented to him that whoever thoroughly discharged his duty must do well, and that at least it was his comfort that he understood his duty, though he did not understand these confounding appearances. In this effort I succeeded far better than in the attempt to reason him out of his conviction. He became calm, the occupations incidental to his post as the night advanced began to make larger demands on his attention, and I left him at two in the morning. I had offered to stay through the night, but he would not hear of it. That I more than once looked back at the red light as I ascended the pathway, that I did not like the red light, and that I should have slept but poorly if my bed had been under it, I see no reason to conceal. Nor did I like the two sequences of the accident and the dead girl. I see no reason to conceal that either. But what ran most in my thoughts was the consideration how ought I to act, having become the recipient of this disclosure. I had proved the man to be intelligent, vigilant, painstaking, and exact, but how long? might he remain so in his state of mind. Though in a subordinate position, still he held a most important trust, and would I, for instance, like to stake my own life on the chances of his continuing to execute it with precision? Unable to overcome a feeling that there would be something treacherous in my communicating what he had told me to his superiors in the company, without first being plain with himself and proposing a middle course to him, I ultimately resolved to offer to accompany him, otherwise keeping his secret for the present, to the wisest medical practitioner we could hear of in those parts and to take his opinion. A change in his time of duty would come round next night, he had apprised me, and he would be off an hour or two after sunrise and on again soon after sunset. I had appointed to return accordingly. Next evening was a lovely evening and I walked out early to enjoy it. The sun was not yet quite down when I traversed the field path near the top of the deep cutting. I would extend my walk for an hour, I said to myself, half an hour on and half an hour back, and it would be then be time to go to my signal man's box. Before pursuing my stroll, I stepped to the brink and mechanically looked down from the point from which I had first seen him. I cannot describe the thrill that seized upon me when, close at the mouth of the tunnel, I saw the appearance of a man with his left sleeve across his eyes, passionately waving his right arm. The nameless horror that oppressed me passed in a moment, for in a moment I saw that this appearance of a man was a man indeed, and that there was a little group of other men, standing at a short distance, to whom he seemed to be rehearsing the gesture he made. The danger light was not yet lighted. Against its shaft, a little low hut, entirely new to me, had been made of some wooden supports and tarpaulin. It looked no bigger than a bed. What an irresistible sense that something was, with an irresistible sense that something was wrong, with a flashing self-reproachful fear that fatal mischief had come of my leaving the man there and causing no one to be sent to overlook or correct what he did, I descended the notched path with all the speed I could make. What is the matter? I asked the men. Signal man killed this morning, sir. Not the man belonging to that box? Yes, sir. Not the man I know. You will recognize him, sir, if you know him, said the man who spoke for the others, solemnly uncovering his own head and raising an end of the tarpaulin, for his face is quite composed. Oh, how did this happen? How did this happen? I asked, turning from one to another as the hut closed in again. He was cut down by an engine, sir. No man in England knew his work better, but somehow he was not clear of the outer rail. It was just at broad day. He had struck the light and had the lamp in his hand, 
As the engine came out of the tunnel, his back was towards her, and she cut him down. The man drove her and was showing how it happened. Show the gentleman, Tom. The man who wore a rough, dark dress stepped back to his former place at the mouth of the tunnel. Coming round the curve in the tunnel, sir, he said, I saw him at the end, like as if I saw him down a perspective glass. There was no time to check speed, and I knew him to be very careful. As he didn't seem to take heed of the whistle, I shut it off when we were running down upon him and called to him as loud as I could call. What did you say? I said, Below there! Look out! Look out! For God's sake, clear the way! I started. Ah, it was a dreadful time, sir. I never left off calling to him. I put this arm before my eyes not to see, and I waved this arm to the last, but it was no use. Without prolonging the narrative to dwell on any one of its curious circumstances more than on any other, I may, in closing it, point out the coincidence that the warning of the engine driver included not only the words which the unfortunate signalman had repeated to me as haunting him, but also the words which I myself, not he, had attached, and that only in my own mind to the gesticulation he had imitated. Aye, aye, aye. Aye, aye, aye. You did so well. Those, like, old-timey stories are so fucking hard to read out loud in, in, like, a compelling way. You do a good job. You were, like, very focused, I I noticed. I had to focus so hard. Yep, you didn't pop up and look at me once, and you really (laughs) only fumbled over conscientious. Yeah. Which is a tricky word to be good with. It's the sentence structure that throws me off, and especially the way Dickens writes. Yeah. His sentences, like, one of his sentences is, like, a normal four sentences put together. Yeah. And the words are inverted from how we use them now. Mm-hmm. So it's it feels like, it's like the rhythm is very different. Yeah, well, you did great. Okay, good. Okay, because I, I tried, I practiced. Oh, well, good. I'm proud of you. Um, I have a few pictures, unless you have questions No, first. I would love to see your pictures. The first one is a picture of a train tunnel. An 1861 train crash at the Clayton Tunnel entrance near Brighton in West Sussex is thought to likely have inspired Dickens' story. Okay. It was big news, and he would have been very familiar with it. And then... This next picture, how cool this picture is. Uh, this story was narrated wow. and put on vinyl a few years ago. Oh, yeah. You were telling me. Oh, yes. I know where this is going. Yep. I so know what you're going to tell me. There was a limited pressing by Cadabra Records. And the person who illustrated the cover art is Philly artist Sam Hamer, mm-hmm. the artist who has also created horror work for several scared to death t-shirts, hoodies, other products that we've had at badmagicmarch.com. Yay, Sam. I, Dan was telling me, he's like, oh, my God, this is the craziest thing. Like, I was looking for photos for this story and this came up and I was like, gosh, that artwork seems familiar. Yeah. Yeah. And actually speaking about artwork, I know recently uh, on an episode, someone had written in that you needed, that it would be great if you could credit the artists like appropriately or whatever. And we we got an email. It's like, oh my God, I can't even believe I didn't think of this. Like Google Lens, you just install it on your phone and you can take a, you can upload a picture or take a picture of anything and it can find its source. And they were explaining it to me that like they had, uh, I don't know, how they came upon a very old Christmas ornament, like 30 years old. Yeah. And no way. Google found Lens it. found it. Okay. Uh, that'll be something for me to work on this next year yeah. is like, you know, using new technology. I to, thought it was cool. Yeah, that's great to trace stuff back to their sources. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I like that story. They're hard for me to follow. Uh, yeah. It, it, They're it, hard to stay in them. And so like, unfortunately what happens is like, I listen a little bit and then I can kind of predict where it's going and my brain goes off. So then I was like, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. We tend to be much more succinct with our story details now in modern writing. Yeah. Where it's like back then that, that you know, uh, Elizabethan or, or whatever, like, you know, kind of prose style. I hate Elizabeth. <laughs> or Victorian, I guess, in this sense. Sorry, I, I hate get my Vicky too. English She's periods terrible. confused here. But but very flowery language 
you know, they're really trying to paint a picture and they did just use a much broader range of vocabulary words. Which I generally love, mm-hmm. but it in a storytelling format where I can't interrupt and say like, wait a second, can you say that again? Yep. That's what I would really need. Yeah. I would need to be following along actually on a written, because I'm not an audible learner to begin with. Yeah. So, uh, is it making you hot? Yeah, it's okay. You can take it off. It's okay. Uh, you know, and then when you add in all that language and that cadence, yeah. I'm like, oh, I should have. For next time, I'll remember to perhaps print out the story and follow along with you. Ah. It won't ruin it for me because I won't yeah. know what's coming if I just do it like day of. Yeah. But that would help make it more tangible in my brain. Yeah. I, I like seeing the roots of where our modern horror stories come from. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, like that one, you know, it's been adapted into numerous like, you know, plays and short films and stuff over the year. But like the basic tenets, you know, uh, are what a lot of stories still follow today. Absolutely. This, you know, these little clues early on, this foreshadowing of like what's to come later. I thought for sure the whole time he was talking to a ghost. Right, that the signal man was the ghost. uh Uh-huh. Right, where now though the signal man kept seeing this harbinger of death, that you know, uh, appearing when something was about to happen. And I do love how, um, yeah, that last, that third time, it was warning him about his death, trying to warn him yep. in some weird fashion that the, that the narrator then put together at the end where he's like, oh, the, the, the gesture that this person made and the words I used uh-huh. were all incorporated into, you know, what happened to him. Which is still essentially like a huge piece of, like you were saying, like a huge piece of what we see now in horror stories, mm-hmm. both fabricated in like big movies and yeah. then in the tales that our fans send us of like, mm-hmm. you know, this thing happened and it kept happening and it kept happening. You know, just the story yeah. I told last week with like the cell phone consistently being pulled off the bedside table. Yeah. It's like over and over. It's not, it's it's continually happening until you will listen. Yeah. Or and, it's too late in this instance. And I do like in that, you know, that Dickens story, like, you know, he was just doing <laughs> that thing where uh, you're planting these little seeds and then like everything wraps up in the end. Yeah. Which is so common now. And like, you know, when it's done well, in modern horror movies and just movies in general and shows. Unless they're going to make it into a trilogy, then it's not wrapped up. Well, yeah, yeah. But you still plant these seeds. I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Pay off them. Yeah. Yeah, I know how that works. Hmm? Yeah. Uh, Are you ready for some stories on this side? I am. Who's your Layla this week? Uh, Still got a little red holiday Layla. I know. There's no green ones. That's okay. Oh, so sad. Better now that you took that off. It's a little toasty in here. Mm -hmm. You put that hat on. Yeah, and, and it and it affects the way my little in ear. Uh, you know, it's so funny it that pushes you said, them into my ear more, so I hear a little differently with oh, that hat ear, on. Ears are so weirdly sensitive. Uh, just I had to like move. I had to take my left in ear out yeah. for a couple minutes because my ear was starting to ache. And it's like, oh yeah, because <laughs> I, I pulled my in ear too tight, so it was pulling my ear back with the combination of the uh, headband. So my ear was like smashing up against. It. It's so I don't know why ears are so weirdly sensitive. Mm-hmm. I can't you can't smash them down like. Uh, like, do yours ever hurt from over ears headphones? Yeah. Yeah. Strange. All right. Well, you want to start with my story of a possession? Yeah. A possible possession? Okay. Hello, Grandmaster Sucker and Queen of the Suck. I'm returning. Uh, I'm recovering. I'm returning from. <laughs> oh, I'm returning from a kidney infection. I'm recovering <laughs> from a kidney infection and have binge scared to death and I won't be sleeping tonight. The more I listen, the more I recall weird stories. I've had a couple near-death experiences and weird stuff that, as a kid, I always thought could be attributed to my anxiety. I was deathly afraid of the dark, but I was never sure why. And there is one story in particular from high school that I've never talked about with anyone. When I was 15, I was deeply religious. I went on a weekend service retreat in Portland, Oregon. 
we went to serve the homeless, which is fine and dandy, doing that Jesus work and all. We'd gather together in small groups, do the praying and stuff afterwards. It was our last night there, and we were gathered in small groups per usual. Suddenly, one of the leaders came running to our group saying they needed help. We all ran to the other room where everyone was adamantly praying over a girl named Kay. She was bent over in a chair and couldn't sit up. Her best friend, Rachel, was holding her hand, sobbing. The entire room was packed with everyone from our church. We were praying intensely, and soon Kay sat up, looking different. She looked lighter. Her tears had stopped. She was serene, I guess. She described a spiritual battle she had just witnessed and finally sat up when the angels had won. I was 15, newly religious, and I ate this up. After this miracle, a second girl began crying. Soon, prayers were said again over Emma. I have no idea what happened or how, but I was shuffled into the second room near Emma. I sat near a girl, Allie, who held my hand. I couldn't pray because I still didn't know what was going on. I'm hesitant to even write out what happened next because I'm afraid I'll come off like a wackadoodle. I'd like to preface this part with the fact that I am now a die-hard scientist. Logic and reason, reason trump everything for me. I've tried to attribute what happened to mass hysteria, but this is just so bizarre. All I remember is that suddenly it was very hard to breathe. My vision began to cave in from the sides. I found Allie with my hands, and I laid my head on her lap. She began, she began whispering prayers in my ears. Her voice was all I could hear before everything went silent. I thought I had fallen asleep, but the next thing I knew, I was standing in a field of grass with a strange man. I walked over and stared at him. He smiled at me and told me everything was going to be okay. And then he twirled me around like a dad does with his young daughter. I touched his beard and laughed because it tickled. I felt safe and warm. He put me down and again said, you're going to be okay. And then my vision began caving again from side to side. I was back in the hotel room surrounded by everyone. And now they were all praying over me. My little warm bubble had lasted maybe 15 or 30 seconds, or so I thought. Allie told me what had happened from her perspective. As I had laid in her lap, my eyes closed but were shifting back and forth rapidly as if I were in a REM sleep, but I was clearly aware of my surroundings. She was whispering prayers into my ears, and soon I tried to block it out by physically covering my ears with my hands. Emma had calmed down enough at this point, and some people had turned towards me and began praying over me. One guy, Peter, took charge of this. He sat down across from me, put his hands on my arms, and prayed. Within 10 seconds, I sat up, my eyes flew open, and I slapped him across the face. I was violently tearing at him, yelling hit at him to stop all of this bullshit. After the initial shock of being slapped, Peter continued praying. I laid back down in Allie's lap, and she said my eyes just kept fluttering. She noticed I had gently scratched her knee, which I recalled being the same moment I was scratching the man's beard. I wouldn't have believed a word anybody said if Peter hadn't had scratches on his arms and a red cheek when I came to. I have no idea what happened or why I blacked out. I still tell myself it was mass hysteria. The whole ordeal felt like 30 seconds had passed, but apparently it lasted over 15 minutes. It's a short amount of time to lose, but still, I have never lost time like that before or since. I was 5'4", and I weighed no more than 115 pounds, while Peter stood well over 6 feet tall. I have never seen someone look so afraid of me. After we returned home, people asked me about what had happened, but I shrugged it off, because I was still unsure. I am now 28 and not religious. I believe in bigger things out there, but I have no idea what they are, what they could be, only that they are bigger than me. 
I don't know where I stand on demons or angels, monsters or ghosts, but whatever happened to me that day has been burned in my mind's eye as I picture the scratches on Peter's arm. It was physically impossible for me to overpower him, and yet I did, multiple times. Working in the ER, I've seen mania, mental health crises, and people do truly incredible and sometimes awful things. However, I can always explain it away with a medication, a drug, adrenaline, something. My patients typically require some kind of treatment. I was 15 at the time that this happened with no medications, no drugs, not even caffeine, and it's highly unusual that any diagnosis that would have even made sense would appear at that age, especially with such quick resolution of symptoms and no medical attention or treatment. As my knowledge of medicine and science grows, the bizarre nature of my experience has grown as well. I've had other experiences, but this one stands out. And now I actively avoid feelings of connection to the other side, and I pretend I'm not in tune with the universe in any capacity. I don't want any dead people showing up asking me for help. I love sleep too much to let Casper and his friends ruin it for me. Anyways, I feel so dumb writing this out and sharing it with you. I thought it would bring me relief, but I still feel like an idiot. I swear I'm not a wackadoodle, but I know what, that's, what they all say. Please never stop making podcasts. And also, if you guys die before me, please haunt me. <laughs> I, I really like that uh, story because I like where they're, where they're coming from. Yeah. Where they are, you know, very science-based and they understand how all this can be perceived. Mm -hmm. But they still have no explanation for what happened that day. You know, like other people are being affected, afflicted by this thing. And then it goes into them or something happens to them. And to lose 15 minutes worth of time. It's a long time. Yeah, to attack somebody multiple times when you're out, to be told late and you have no recollection of any of this. Mm -hmm. And now it's been many years since this happened. And, you know, it, it, that wasn't like the beginning of a descent into the, the, you know, having to deal with some type of serious mental illness. Right. It was just this weird one-off uh -huh. that happened in a very... A specific set of circumstances, mm -hmm. you know, like that. It's like, yeah, what is that about? And and some people like, um, I think will think like, okay, well, how could you experience something like that, and then also still can not consider yourself religious? I'm one of those people where it's like, oh, a lot of the elements, like I'm not religious, but I do believe that a lot of the elements of the religion could still be true. Yes, in in, sure. in some sense, you know, where it's like. Yeah, I, I don't follow a particular religious ideology, but that doesn't mean I don't think that demons interpreted in certain ways could be real. Right. right? Or I think they do, they could be real, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's kind of like where they're at, where they're like, I'm not religious, but something happened that day and there was some weird shit going on and I don't know where I stand on ghosts and demons and monsters. Like they definitely sound like that experience left them open to that stuff, if not thinking that stuff probably is real on some level. Yeah, I really did like this uh, intersection of their science medical mind and yeah. their religious tendency from their youth. Like, I think what yeah. they walked away with is like, uh, organized religion is not for me, but that mm -hmm. doesn't mean that I don't believe that there could be and likely is something. Yeah. Putting both of those aside, taking what I know medically and just applying it to what I've seen in my career, mm -hmm. and then looking back on this, I can't I can't make sense of it. And I love this uh, mass hysteria because I do think yeah. that sometimes things like that do happen. You know, yeah, like, we feed off each other's energy. But Yeah, or like at that age, at 15, it's like, well, if Emma's falling down right. in, in some sort of trance, I, wanna, I want that attention. It's like sure. at that age, we are a, 
tend to be more attention seeking. Yeah. But it, she's like, I wasn't even praying. I didn't even like, this was all new to me. I didn't know mm -hmm. what was going on or what I was supposed to do. And, and this to black out. For 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and then I, to see yeah. what she saw in her mind's eye, it's like, if you are religious, I would imagine that you would think like, I saw God mm -hmm. or, or mm -hmm. something representing Jesus, yeah. God, master creator, whatever you want to call sure. it. Uh, and even now she's like, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I yeah. just don't know. And I like that. I like that piece of she, this person came like respectfully towards religion. Didn't uh, like, uh -huh. cause I think it could have gone the other way too. We're like, Oh, of course. But it's like, no, she's just saying like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. 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 I really like the, the blacking out is what makes the story really special to me because like mass hysteria is a real thing. And like you said at that age, you can definitely get like really caught up in a moment and become very, you know, melodramatic, much mm -hmm. more so than you would normally be. And, you know, that, that stuff's kind of proven. You might like be like, you know, screaming and dancing around and just acting very different than you would normally ever act. Right. But you don't black out. Right. That's not, that's not a uh, aspect of mass hysteria is losing con losing like memory of where you are for 15 minutes while acting completely different and doing all these things that also like atypical strength and, and yeah, a lot the of things strength think was peculiar mm -hmm, which is associated with like possession you know like unnatural weight people will suddenly be much heavier or feel much heavier than they normally mm -hmm. are um will you know speak in uh voices not their own have an unnatural amount of strength speak yeah. in languages you know that's just one of the many things that keep coming up over and over and over and uh, something, I don't know, at this point, this far into the show, something's out there. I'm, I'm convinced that there's shit out there. Well, okay. I just don't I just don't know what it is. In, in this instance, I have to wonder, like, they were on this concentrated, like, I'm going to call it a mission trip. I know it's yeah. just a, a weekend away, but they were there with a purpose, it sounds like. I wonder if it's possible that with so much concentrated love of God, if that also, if we're like exploring like God and demons, can that be a draw for demons of like, oh, there's so much towards the other side in this, mm -hmm. you know, concentrated in this one space. I'm going to get in there and I'm going to, you know, get them, break it up, uh, mm -hmm. take over. This is, It's like, uh, if you wanted to spread a rumor quickly. Yeah. What's the best way to do it? In a large group of people, tell one person telephone game. So kind of like that. Like, is the demon smart enough to see like, this is a group of people and I can get this whole group all at once and shake them all up and, you know, rock their faith? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Because it's not like they, I don't think they were like screwing around with a Ouija board the night before. Mm -mm. I don't know. Like what would make that happen? I know. I know there was an interesting thing where it almost always, I mean, very few exceptions happens in a religious setting. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like, like that's always like the, where I, sorry, I'm just, words are hard today for whatever reason, It's okay. <laughs> but I'm just thinking like, why does that always seem to be the case? Like, why isn't the large group like a metal concert <laughs> Yeah, 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 or a baseball game? Oh my gosh. Why, why is it like connected to religion? And it's not just Christianity. Like there are similar things that go on, like in stories, you know, with, from within Islam and, you know, like other, other religions, like, but why, why is that the connection? You know, why, why don't these, these entities make themselves known in very different settings? Well, I guess, it, I guess if it's the, my initial like quick knee jerk reaction is if it's the battle of good and evil, mm -hmm. what is the way that evil can touch and torment as many people on the other side 
as quickly as possible. And it's not going to be at a baseball game. And that's not because you don't know the religious, like they're not there for a religious only, purpose. Like, that's so only, if you, only if you assign religion to being good. True. True. That, that's that's where I, and I know that's the religious answer is like well they're battling for souls yeah and if you're not part of this religion your soul's already lost and so they're going for souls and I mean I, yeah I guess that's, that's that's an argument if that religion's true but I just think like I don't know I I, I mean I guess outside of that I don't know what the answer would be well that's fair it's okay to not know I think yeah. that's like the joy of this show is that we don't we don't mm-hmm. know yeah you ready for one more I am I'm gonna go hear about La Llorona. Yes. Okay. Hello, my name is Clint, and this is a true story. I moved to a very small town in Colorado in the sixth grade. For reference, my graduating class was one of the larger ones with 12 people. (laughs) It sounds an awful lot... It sounds an awful lot like Riggins, just shittier, but still a logging ranching town. Upon moving there, I heard all of the typical paranormal stories that were associated with said area. It is a very historic area of Colorado, situated in the north end of the San Luis Valley, originally occupied by ancient Ute tribes, discovered and explored by conquistadors and part of the Spanish Trail. Naturally, there are loads of native ghost stories mixed in with Spanish ghost stories, and as white settlers moved in, more traditional ghost stories. My entire life, I had been hearing spooky stories. My stepdad's family was infatuated with the paranormal. I myself had never experienced anything, never believed any of it, but then that changed as I began to have my own encounters. With the town having deep Hispanic heritage, naturally, the story of La Llorona was bound to happen. If you don't know about La Llorona, then Google her. She's a bad bitch. (laughs) After living in town a bit, I began to hear the stories about how, on certain nights, at certain times, somewhere along the creek, you could find her and see her and to fucking run if you did. The old tale is, she got sick of her kids, put them in a potato sack, threw them in the creek, and drowned them. And now she walks the banks, wailing for her children. And she will snag your ass up as her own if you run into her down by the creek. Personally, I thought this story was cooked up to keep kids from playing in the creek at night so they didn't drown. And just so you know, this creek is known as Sawatch Creek. Fast forward from the old 1800s era ghost stories to 2005. There was a piece of property outside of town that had an old flour mill on it. It has changed hands, owners, and whatnot since the days of old. However, there's paranormal stories associated with this property, and one of those is La Llorona. In 2005, the property was owned by a teacher at our school, whom we all knew and whom we all loved. While coming into science class one day, I overheard this teacher, Mr. Stevens, conversing with my science teacher, Mr. Fershow about the weird stuff happening on his property and how restoring the old flour mill was literally going to kill him. While listening to the story, I overheard Mr. Stevens tell Mr. Fershow that every time Mr. Steven attempted to repair something, it ended up breaking. And the last time he was working on the mill, a timber fell on him and cracked his skull. Yes, literally fractured his skull. Now, there have always been stories about this flour mill and the creek because the creek powers the mill. However, they're mixed with stories about an old medicine woman and also about La Llorona. One of the stories was that if you drove down County Road X, yes, literally a county road labeled with the letter X, and drove across the creek at midnight, not 1159, not 1201, at midnight, on a full moon, your car (laughs) would die and you could very possibly see La Llorona, or worse yet, be taken by her. It was my senior year of high school and my girlfriend, my then girlfriend, now wife, and I had recently started dating. 
We still didn't know each other very well, and she did not know my friends well at all. It was only the second or third time she had really ever hung out with them. We were doing typical high school senior stuff as the year was coming to an end and graduation was nearing. Being young, dumb high school kids and looking to be scared to death on a full moon night, we were six deep in a four-seat Pontiac Grand Am. It was close to midnight, (laughs) and so we decided we'd go across the bridge on County Road X. County Road X just so happens to be parallel to the property of Mr. Stevens, the one with the flour mill. The flour mill is situated about 500 yards west of County Road X, just out of view of the trees, and about 50 yards of bare open pasture between the roads and the trees. We staged our car up the road at the intersection and waited for 11.59, thinking it would take us about a minute to travel to the bridge. We slowly started towards the bridge, waiting for the clock to tick midnight. The clock hit 12, and as we approached the bridge, maybe 300 feet away, out of the corner of my eye, I saw someone. And before I could say anything, the driver, my friend Kendra, punched the accelerator, and boy, am I glad she did. I still hadn't said anything about what I was now looking at. Black hair covered her face, wearing a white nightgown. She looked just like the girl from the ring. She was muddy, wet, ominous. She was brightly illuminated by the headlights of our car, plain as day, just standing in the pasture right at the tree line. We started to cross the bridge, and she faded into the moonlight, still there, just not as visible. And just at that moment, I shouted, holy fuck, did anyone (laughs) else see that? I didn't say what I saw. I just asked if anyone saw that. My best friend, Daniel, turned around from the front seat and asked, was it a woman in a white dress? I contemplated if this was a prank, but then I realized I hadn't said what I had seen. And at that moment, we crossed the threshold of the bridge and the car sputtered and the headlights turned off and the engine died. Our vehicle kept rolling, almost like it was being pushed, engine dead, lights off. The girls in the car were freaking out, except my wife. She was totally silent. Mm -hmm. As soon as our car crossed the bridge, the vehicle's power came back on without anyone ever touching the ignition. The car just started running again. My friend Kendra proceeded to haul copious amounts of ass. She drove straight back back to town. We all sat in silence and disbelief. My wife, at the time, thought we were playing a prank on her. It wasn't until many years later, while telling a fellow Marine of mine this story, did she realize that this actually happened and that it wasn't a prank. She looked at me and said, wait, what? Y'all weren't just fucking with me? (laughs) And that was when I realized she had seen it too. She denied seeing anything because she was afraid to look foolish in front of my friends. But it was in that moment I realized that she too had seen La Llorona. I just finished the They Won't Leave episode of Scared to Death and expand and expounding upon what the Queen of Bad Magic said, there's no way a group of people could keep a joke running for 20 years. And it's <laughs> been damn near 20 years. And I still will occasionally ask my friends, hey, do you remember the woman in the white dress? And I get mixed emotional reactions. People still see shit out there and the property is now vacant and the old flour mill is wasting away. Stay rad and make death earn it. Clint. <laughs> Make death earn it, Clint. That's a fucking awesome know, saying. To me, that was very like Marine. I was yeah. like, that, I bet that comes from the Marines. I bet I they say it. that and then scream like, a, a, okay, wait, is Marines hoorah? Uh, I know there's oorah and hoorah, and I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to mess so it up. So, Clint, wrong. I'm sorry if I got it wrong, but like, I just like imagine like, make death earn it. Dude, that, that, that should be, I, yeah, that's a great thing to have like on a t shirt. I was like, oh, some badass graphic. I was imagining that's your next tattoo. I was like, okay, here we go. <laughs> make death earn it I know I love I that I love that it reminds me of like a, a line from like my famous uh, favorite poem that Dylan Thomas that rage rage against the dying of the light oh like don't don't let death come easy I didn't know you had a favorite poem mm-hmm. I just learned something very new about you <laughs> Kyler also loves poetry 
Yeah, he loves uh, uh, Dylan Thomas too. Oh, well, look at that. Mm-hmm. Two brilliant men discussing poetry. <laughs> yeah, great Irish uh, poet. Um, I don't give a shit about poetry. I don't usually, but I, but I like, but some of them I'm like, okay, it's really cool. I mean, In some moments. of them like Robert Frost stuff. Like, yeah, and, of course, yeah. there's like mm-hmm. the famous and then, you know, there's yeah. like the quotes from them and stuff. Although I am reading a book Edgar of, po- I am reading a book of poetry right now that I really like. And yeah. it's, yeah, it's called The Diary of a Terrorist. And it's, you have to read it in small bits because when you really, it doesn't seem heavy, right? Because it's just, it's a small book and you read, you're looking at one page of uh, copy and you're like, how, but it's heavy. Yeah. It was beautifully written though. Really beautifully written. Uh, so what do you think about that story? Yeah, I, I really liked it. I mean, it, it is that thing where it's like, okay, like what Clint said about, you know, who keeps a joke going, you know, that long. Right, right. But also, you know, just, okay, taking the story is, you know, the way Clint laid it out there was like these details where, where it's like, what, how else could you explain it other than some kind of paranormal aspect? Of, We're both burpy. I'm so sorry. I, I don't know. I feel I, like I'm constant. I don't know what's my, my deal is. It's only when I sit here. I swear to God. I know. It's like, I had, so, I had green, chi- like something a, about trying to hold your enchilada stuff. chicken or something. And I'm like, it <laughs> never gives me heartburn. And all of a sudden, all I'm doing is burping over here. I think we're just aware of it. When we're not on the mic. I think, I think people just do that a lot in life in general. Yeah. But like, because we know it could be picked up and amplified. Uh-huh. And when you're in conversation, you can kind of be sneaky. And when the other person's talking. Not if you're talking, your dad. You're well, my dad. dad, I know. I know. Mm-hmm. I am actually going to start working with a, a, a dietitian mm-hmm. early this next year to try to get the right diet for my system. Because, yeah. you know, food sensitivities. Because I see what it looks like when you don't do that. And my dad is the burpiest man who's ever lived. And I'm like, oh, I'm turning into him. It's just like mid-conversation. It's just, it's, and it's constant. It's usually- and it's, <clears throat> It's, he's been like all day, every, every day that way for at least 25 years. Uh, Bless him. But like, yeah, with his story, when multiple people see something like, like I like that he pointed out, he's like, did you see it? No description, no details. That is a favorite move of mine. Yep. And then the next person, you know, his buddy is like the lady in the white dress. Mm-hmm. So there's that detail. There's the engine dying as they cross the bridge, which correlates to like the urban legend. Which is crazy. That's fucking crazy. And then another detail I really liked was this they see or he sees this you know woman who looks like the lady from the ring uh-huh. and then sees her start to kind of fade uh-huh so because at first i did think like okay if there's this legend that at midnight totally and you know kids it's like i don't know end of senior year or whatever like that yeah yeah that'd be a great fucking prank just dress up like the girl from the ring and wait by that bridge right at midnight to scare the shit out of people. That would actually be a great senior prank. Just like somebody dress up like the girl, like multiple friends yeah. dress up like the girl from the ring. Uh, I mean, if you want to be ballsy and like risk getting in a lot of trouble, <laughs> figure out how to turn off the lights in your school, like yeah. midday and then just run down the hallway in that costume. <laughs> but like if each of you and your friends takes a hallway, yeah, yeah. oh, it'd be so good. Yeah, but, but the way it connected like into this, you know, legend, I was like, oh, okay, I can see somebody doing that. Totally. Hiding out by the tree line. Mm-hmm. But it's that detail of them fading. Yeah. As opposed to just like running off, you know, that makes it like, well, what else could that be? Yeah. So you add add all the elements of that story together. Sure seems like they saw something. Yeah. Uh, the Pontiac Grand Am thing was specifically- Six people in a four-seat car? Oh God. It was making me laugh so hard because I had a Pontiac Grand Am and the, I drove that car until it literally caught on fire and was smoking. Like oh, yeah. my engine just, <laughs> I had to, in order to start that car every day, I had to pour coolant into it and then oh, start God. the car. And it went on like that for like, I don't know, the better part of a year. When you first got it though, did you feel so sick? Just like driving this- Okay. Cool Listen, sports car from the day. I had a lot of cars because I was a I whatever. Uh, 
so that was my least cool car. Oh, so okay. I just was like, okay, whatever. But I was just thinking about that car, and I'm like, oh my god, the engine died so many times in that car. So when I like got oh, to this point, yeah. I was like, well, it could just be like that car, but so weird, and like, what an odd thing that the car dies and then starts right back up on its own. Right after That's, the bridge, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that there's a mechanic out there listening uh, that could explain that away to me, but... I know, I was trying to think like if the driver, that girl that was a friend of his, yeah. I'm like, is there a way that you could, as you go over a bridge, like for a little stretch, like stall your car? I mean, there, I'm, there probably is, I don't know it. Yeah. And I, I, I never talked to anybody about it, about how to like, as you're driving, make your car suddenly stall and then come back on without like notably doing anything with the ignition or something. Well, that's something. what Clint says. He says like, she didn't touch it. So it just did and it. And when your car so- frees up, like if it was in drive and you're going, because if it's in neutral, it just Different keeps story, like, yeah, yeah like, yeah. you know, just rolling along and, you know, as gravity and whatever kind of like friction start to slow it down. But if like, if you're just driving along, I'm like, I'm afraid of what would happen if I just like, if I'm just driving down the road and I turn off my ignition in my truck, I feel like that's going to, not be good. Yeah, I feel like that's going to fuck up a lot of it's things. It's going to fuck up really bad, yeah. <laughs> Your vehicle, the car behind you is going to smash into you. <laughs> right. Just like so yeah. many, so many yeah. different things. I would, this story did make me think of a story way back when, a fan story that took place just up in Rathdrum, I think, mm-hmm. uh, which is not far from where we live, of a Slenderman story. And I know it's like an urban legend, but it was like a kid's birthday party and the kids were doing like a... um hide and go see kind of situation. Yeah. And the parents had like planned to kind of like spook the kids. And then the kids really got right. scared and came back. And maybe it was like an uncle. And he was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. says to his, you know, the brother or somebody else is like, oh, I saw you out there. And they were like, I wasn't, I wasn't out, there. out there. And yep. it was, there was two people, but not. I remember that story now. I oh, forgot, I forgot so it was in the bathroom, but yeah. Yeah, good one. Uh, I like yeah, I like both your stories. Well, thanks, dude. Appreciate it. And next week, the last episode of 2023. That's crazy. crazy. Mm-hmm. It went it went fast and it went slow. I, totally. Yeah. Totally, dude. Do you want to do some shout outs or do you want me to go first? I can, I can start. Okay, go for it, bro. I would like to thank the following Annabelles for supporting us on Patreon and thank you for letting us do the charitable donations and all the good stuff. Uh, Lisha and Brennan, Michelle McDaniels, Teresa Klotfelter, Bella Lee, Chad Seaton, Amber Meek, uh, Ashasaurus Rex, <laughs> <laughs> Spooky 1388, uh, Kiefer McKissick, and Kayla Bug. I got a really funny email from somebody, and they're like, oh, man, you really missed it on that one. Uh, the name was that they gave was Mike Oxel or something. But it's it, if you say it fast, it's my cock is small. My cock is ah! small. And oh, he funny. emailed, Dang and he was it. like, you guys Mike missed Oxhard. it. Uh, well, my, Mike Oxhard. It wasn't oh, hard, Mike but Oxhard. same yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another good one. Mike, Mike. Oh, yeah. Mike Oxhart. Mike Oxhart. Yep. Uh, he was laughing. He was ah. like, you ding-dongs. <laughs> uh, I'd like to thank the following patrons as well for all the support you provide for us. The Garbage Pail Queen. I feel like that was Monroe when she was about five. Uh-huh. Uh, Quentin Arnett. Deborah. Carrie Lawrence. Ashley Grant. Coy Stallings. Nicholas Combs. Samuel O'Reilly. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Shannon Spoon. <laughs> and Amanda Hood. <sighs> Logan, does it does it have a little like, wow? Like, is there like a good guitar thing in there too? Oh, yeah. It's, a, it's like a woman, I'm pretty sure. That's the end of it. Oh, O'Reilly Auto Parts. Ow! I forgot about that. 100%. Ow! <laughs> <laughs> That's the longest running commercial. That Did you have um, Garfield? 
one. What, do you know what I'm talking about, Logan? It's like no. a, it was a Garfield carpet or Garfield windows, but it was like. It, Empire. It's like, like the, it's like that. Yes. Wow. But it was just like Garfield one, two, three, two, three. Like it, I, funny. I, I, I don't know if that's an Ohio thing, but I love a terrible oh. catchy jingle. Around here, Ziggy's auto, uh, Ziggy's, um, it's like a construction site stuff, but it's Ziggy's. Yes, Ziggy's. I've never heard that. And it ran on like the commercial for like 20 years and TV shows, Ziggy's. Yes, Ziggy's. Logan, do you have one from back home that's like a the standout? The one that's sticking out is like we, we have this like main grocery store called Babs and it's been the same jingle since before I was born. Oh. And it's, Bab Super Value is working for you. Dun, dun, dun. It's just such an earworm. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. silly, stupid, but it works. If it's, not broke, if it's not broke, why fix it? Why fix it? All right. I have a few spoopy shout outs okay. to Kayla from Kayla. Hey, future me. It's past you. Hope we had fun at the work Christmas party. Are you ready for vacay? Christmas in Florida? Oh, yeah. To Carmen <laughs> from B Squared Honey and Biscuit. Happiest of birthdays to the best mom. We love you. To Cassidy from your mom, Madison. Happy 13th birthday to my teen creeper. I love you and I'm proud of who you're growing into. From Marlena to Marina. Happy birthday. Love you the most. Have a great day. You deserve the best. To Megan from Dylan. Happy second anniversary. It's been a tough year. Thanks for being by my side. You are the best thing that ever happened to me. I love you. And to Kenna from Caleb. You can do anything you set your mind to. I'm so proud of you. Kenna uh, just got her master's degree. And this is from her brother, Caleb. Oh, oh I love that. I, know, I love so the you know, both aspects of that. Getting the master's and congrats from the brother. I know, it's so sweet. I want to give a spoopy shout out to our kids. Just hearing all that. It's like, Ugh. I'm so proud of both of them. I know. I really have, am. Our kids, we're in a really good place with mm-hmm. our kids. They're Kyle doing Monroe, great. We're doing great. Yeah. Good kids, good people. Yeah, they're pretty okay. <laughs> and that is our holiday show. Uh, thanks for continuing to send your personal tales of terror to my story at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. You can email us for everything else at info at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. Thank you to Logan Keith, the art warlock, for editing, publishing today's show. Thanks to Heather Rylander for organizing the My Story emails, to book editor Drew Atana, polishing, preparing listener stories for book number five. And thanks to new contributor Molly Jean Box. Molly Box! <laughs> for finding the first story I told this week. And to Charles Dickens for finding the second. Thanks, Charlie Dick. Writing the second. Uh, we're on YouTube if you'd like to watch us, on Facebook and Instagram, where we post pics that accompany episodes and more at Scared to Death Podcasts. And we have a private Facebook group, Creeps and Peepers, full of fellow horror lovers. Enjoy your nightmares, creeps and peepers. Happy, happy holidays, and hope you were scared to death. Bye. If spirits threaten me in this place, fight water by water and fire by fire. Banish their souls into nothingness and remove their powers until the last trace. Let these evil beings flee through time and space. Evil may pass through, but have no home here within scared to death. Magic Productions. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.